Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Warning. 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 Trigger alert. She about to say some real shit. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to Gold Mines with Claudia Gold. I have surely been thinking about a lot of stuff, and I've been thinking nonstop about the elections that are tomorrow. Hopefully you are too. You're not allowed to complain about anything unless you vote. If you vote, I will listen to all of your kvetching. But if you don't vote, I don't want to hear it. Just shit the fuck up. Anyhow, tomorrow we hit the polls in mass. Let's get our people in there. Let's get some progressives in there. We can do it. Also wanted to alert you, New York Cityers, that next week is New York City Jewelry Week. And we are having an event at our store at 101 Delancey, Clon Co., with Tommy Jewels and the girls from GBY Beauty in L.A. They're going to come and do Tooth Gems. I believe that we are going to have some special beaded necklaces from Minya Quirk as well. As well, I'm saying as well 900 times, as well, as well, as well as... Claw Money is about to open up her jewelry archive and sell some of that shit because uh, I'm over-golded enough. So I'm pulling out some vintage, one-of-a-kind pieces. Tommy Jules is there making beautiful 14-karat gold stuff. So make sure to pop by. Speaking of New York City, one of my pride and joys is bagels. Our next guest believes that the bagels in Montreal are better than the bagels in New York City. WTF. Who says that? He also is incredibly affected by American politics. He is a kind, caring, wonderful man, and I'm proud to call him a friend. He's toured all over the world with famous, famous people. DJ A track. Welcome. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B, and advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. 
So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Today is a beautiful day in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I am sitting here with the man, the myth, the legend... A-Track. Hello. He is here. Just came to New York just to do this podcast. Mm-hmm. Just no, not really. Why are you here? Why am I here? You're I'm always here. here. Yeah. I, 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 I live half the time in New York. I split my time between New York and L.A. I'm still mostly here. Why? Why New York? Uh-huh. And why L.A.? Well... Is that why you're blonde? <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Um, well, New York for a lot of reasons. I've been here. I, I moved to New York in 2006. I grew up in Montreal. We. Oui. We. Oui. I grew up in Montreal, um, which is close to New York. Very close. Yeah, it's like an hour flight. It's like five, six hour drive. It's easy. My mom had relatives in Queens. So like even as kids, the family would go down to New York sometimes. Um, and of course, once, you know, once I got into hip hop, it became, you know, the Mecca to go visit as much as often and just, you know, get actual artifacts, you know. And soak things in, so soak in the culture. And then my brother moved here first. Dave moved to New York to go to Columbia for his PhD. So he came here in like 2002 or something. And I would visit more and more. I was already DJing and it became like... Your brother is a doctorate? Yes. Dr. Chromio? Well, he actually... <laughs> yeah, he... Uh, uh, blessings. All, blessings to you, smart yeah, boys. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Chromio, I like that. Yeah. So, yeah, he came here first and... I would come visit more and more. And then, yeah, for my DJing, there was just more for me to do here. So eventually I moved here as well. Even growing up in Montreal as a hip-hop fan, you know, the 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 New York ethos of hip-hop and like 90s East Coast hip-hop became, you know, really the identity that I wanted to soak up and absorb. So it just felt natural to come here and actually be there. So do you go to Canada a lot? I go a few times a year for sure. I end up having like one or two shows a year in, in, in any case, and then I'll go see my parents whenever I can. But they come and visit us in the States too. So are you American now? Um, I still have a Canadian passport. I'm still a Canadian citizen, but I have a, I've, ha- I've had a green card for like 10 years. And do almost. you vote? I can't yet because I'm not, I'm not, you need to be a citizen. That's the main difference between having a green card and getting your citizenship is voting and jury duty. Correct. Aside from that, it's all pretty much the same. So, and you know, with the climate Nobody now, wants to do jury duty. No, but I do feel <laughs> like I probably should go and do that citizenship test so I can, so I can vote. I do feel, you know, the weight of that more than ever. Um, and well, I was el- going to ask you, how much does American politics affect you as a Canadian who is now 
living, you know, an expat in yeah. in America. I mean, I feel like, it, Ameri- like American politics kind of affect everyone now, or at least anyone in North America. But, you know. Did it affect you when you were younger? Um, I mean, you would just know about it culturally, you know. Canada is, uh, you know, Montreal itself is really close to the U.S. border, you know. And, and I just think, you know, American news and current events are just part of your day-to-day if you're living especially close by. Okay. You know, of course, as Canadians, we would keep up with Canadian news and politics, but you, everybody also knew what was going on in the U.S. as well. And uh, and to, to finish answering your question, the L.A. move came in the last, like, four, three, four years or so. <clears throat> I, I went there to work on some music and just ended up getting a crib and, and splitting my time. But I can't really leave New York, but it is nice to escape it sometimes. It's more it's more in that sense. Like, I, it's hard for me to record music in New York for some reason. It ends up being like the last thing that I just don't do when I'm here. So I kind of do everything Well, you're else. like busy doing everything else. Right? Yeah, I right. just, I'm, I'm, I'm running around doing projects and things. And then, you know, a week or two will go by and I'll be like, I haven't been making music. I've just been like doing stuff. And it's all, it all feels important, but I really need to make music too. So then I'll go to LA and when I'm there, I have a different kind of focus where I'm able to just concentrate on maybe two, three things in a day, one of which being, you know, a block of a few hours of music. And I'm able to let that block of time be uninterrupted. I I find that's the one part that's tough about New York life is saying from, you know, three to nine o'clock, I'm doing this thing and actually committing to that time. Because because of the energy I'm, in the air, yeah, you just yeah. feel like you're missing out on stuff. You need there's other stuff to do. It's business or like what do um, you think is the distraction? It's not really like a FOMO. Like I don't, it's not really a missing out. Feeling. Or no, you're like I need to meet with all these people. I'm here. Like yeah, I just my every day feels like I have to do twelve things, and I do it. <laughs> but it's harder to block, you know, creative time in that. Right. Or like, so, like or solitude. Basically. Yeah. 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 Right. Just you know enough time to clear your thoughts and, and create. I'm sure it's possible. There's obviously plenty of artists here, but my life kind of ended up being broken down like that, my flow of work, where New York is also where Fool's Gold is and, you know, where, you know, my business manager is here, my lawyer is here, my actual management is here too. So, like, I ended up doing all these meetings and a bunch of, I don't know, press stuff, Fool's Gold projects, all that. And that just fills up my days. And then I'll go do my L.A. time. And have that be more like the music making time. So you're able to sort of carpet, like uh, compartmentalize, right? Your different aspects of your career yeah. into, and even of my life because LA time ends up being sort of recharge, wellness time, self care, self care time. Yeah, which you know. I'm not as young. That, I mean, I feel not, I feel that way too. When yeah. I go to LA, I'm just re- relaxed. Yeah. It's a very different vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even when you just step off the print. Okay. Yeah. Enough about New York and LA. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about bagels. Sorry. <laughs> I heard there's great bagels in Montreal. Yeah. I have had many arguments mm-hmm. with French Canadians yep. about, about that. Yeah. Jews of the world, we love our bagels. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? Where are the best bagels? New York or Montreal? Montreal. Look, I'll- what? Yeah. I, I, I love New York at this point, you know, in my adult life and whatnot, having spent more than 10 years in New York. I, I New York will, I'll claim a New York identity with the one exception. Being that, that is just straight wild. 
I mean, it's I'm, step up your game, people. I don't think you've tried the Montreal bagel. It's, it's I haven't. I yeah, haven't. It's a different thing. It's a different experience. In what way? It's even practically a different shape because New York bagels. There's not even really a hole. They're just like, right, right, they're a yes. fat thing with like Without, a suggestion right, of a hole. Yes. You know, and then there's implied, a little stripe in the middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Montreal bagels are thinner, but they're made with a lighter kind of dough and it's even kind of sweet. Um, I I think they even put I forget there's a little sugar. Yeah, or like honey or something in the mm. water. I forget what it is. It's something about the water. Um it's definitely it's a lot lighter. So a Montreal bagel's lighter and a little sweeter. New York bagel, I feel like when you eat it, when you eat one, you you kind of like automatically you know, inflate yourself and give up on eating anything else for at least half a day. Like you, you ingest a New York bagel and you become like a a, a, a zeppelin, a balloon. Is this a Los Angeles person talking to me? Because no. I don't know. I could down three bagels and then go have lunch two hours later. I don't even I don't know, know what that means. Um, they just taste better in Montreal. No, I don't. Los Angeles isn't allowed to participate in this conversation. <laughs> let's let's talk about you. Okay. When you were a, a a young a young boy, a little boy chick, were you musical? I would say yes because I picked up music pretty early on. So yeah. what were you doing? You were playing piano. You were playing violin. What what was your entree into music? Right. So the the steps were as follows. My brother, who's older, started playing the guitar early on. And it's just us two. So I was ha- always hanging out with him and his friends. So whatever him and his friends were doing, I wanted like my version of that. Sure. Right? What's the age difference? Four years. Uh-huh. Right. So he played the guitar from early on. So pretty quickly, I wanted to play an instrument. So I, I played the piano for maybe two or three years. I took piano lessons when I was like 10 or 11 or something. Um, and that was, it was okay. I wasn't great. Uh-huh. Um, I kind of lost interest. But then I I started messing around with with scratching and DJing. And so how back. did how did that happen? That, did you have the equipment at home? Did you want the equipment? Like I mean, the way that it happened was just getting exposed to hip hop. I was 13 and into everything from the Beastie Boys to Far Side to Tribe and, and, and whatnot. And so this is the early nineties. Yeah, this was like well, I was yeah, I was thirteen in ninety-five. Okay. Right? I feel like ninety-four is when I got into hip hop. 94 to infinity. Mm-hmm. Well, 93, but yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, you're right. You're right. <laughs> okay. Who's, who's counting? Um, so, yeah. By 94, I was picking up, like, you know, the first Farsight album. Okay. De La Soul, Balloon, Mind State. Some, you know, some— You know, uh, just—, just uh, De La Soul gets no props. They are just so— They're amazing. Amazing. Anyway, okay, amazing. go on. Okay, so you um, De La Soul. Yeah, De La Tribe— you know, a little bit of KRS One, kind of like discovering some of DJ Premier's productions and all that. So, but really, the Beasties were the catalyst. Um, and again, this goes for myself, my brother, and our little group of friends. Were you only listening to like Jewish hip hop? Was like your focus? <laughs> no, you know what <laughs> it was. Joking. Before that, we were all into like Zeppelin and Hendrix and sure. classic rock kind of stuff. Especially given that Dave was playing the guitar and kind of like you learn Hendrix songs. That's just the thing you do, right? I was really into the Chili Peppers, like Blood Sugar, Sex Magic. So good. You know, Mother's Milk, that era. And if you're into the Chili Peppers, and it's 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 that not— That funk bass line yeah, it's is, not a, a, is a it, gateway a, drug into exactly. hip-hop. Exactly. You go from that to Cypress Hill and the Beasties, right? Like Cypress Hill and the Beasties were the bridge from— Yes, I agree. You know, Hendrix, Zeppelin, and current Chili Peppers to— 
hip hop beats. And then from there, it goes to Tribe and Farsight and De La. And then, you know, but at the same time, Raekwon was coming out, Mob Deep was coming out. So, you know, a few months later, like the ear opens itself to that too. So just being aware of scratching from hearing it on records, I think everyone tried scratching at one point on their parents' record player. The thing that was different for me was that it didn't sound like trash. That was like the anomaly. Oh, you were like, I can do this. Yeah, I just picked up like literally an album. I didn't have DJ equipment, but my dad had a record player. And just grabbing any LP and trying to scratch, where for most people it just sounds like, you know, cacophony or whatever. When I tried it, it sounded like scratching. From there, it just it just ignited so, so did you say, I need DJ equipment, I'm going to be a DJ, you need mom and dad, was, you need to spend thousands of dollars because this is something that really interests me. It was a it was a process and it wasn't even thousands of dollars and luckily by then I had a little bit of bar mitzvah money too, uh, yeah. which wasn't even that much because I didn't, we didn't have like a big lavish bar mitzvah for me, but the steps were, I start scratching, I start really getting like enamored with this thing and being like, whoa, this is fun and like getting very invested and focused in trying to actually like un- understand how these scratches are made, the stuff I would hear on records. And like, it becomes like a decoding exercise because there's no, back then there weren't lessons for no. teaching. And, and even if there were, I was definitely too young, but there wasn't even any. And like, it was even pre-YouTube and any of that, of course. So I was just listening to records and trying to emulate. And then one day my brother and his friends you know, are in the basement and they see me doing this stuff and they're like, what the hell? Like, how come you can do this? Especially me being younger and they weren't able to do that themselves. So Dave started really encouraging me and and pretty much coaching me because he was he was older and he already had a, a musical ear from playing in bands in high school and whatnot. He was already at that point. So he was hearing me scratch. And even though he didn't know how to scratch, he could tell when something sounded right or wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, so so he would, at first he would just say, hey, this is good. Like you should, why don't you start practicing this more regularly? Because this is- Right, you got something. Yeah, exactly. You got something. And then it went from that to like listening to me practice and saying, that trick doesn't sound right, but this one sounds right. Try to work on that one more. And, you know, kind of coaching me in that sense. So it wasn't a competitive thing. No, we've never been competitive. Amazing. Yeah. And for me, I felt awesome because when I was trying to play the piano a little bit earlier, I didn't- feel like I was particularly good at that. But when I discovered scratching, it there was something about it that felt really validating to me because I felt like I found my thing. That was really a beautiful feeling. And I think I only understood that later, thinking back to be like, oh, that's that's why those years, you know, were filled with, you know, a sort of... Um, a, valid, a purpose, right? Yeah, a purpose, a validating feeling of thinking like there's something that that is going to be uniquely mine. And even my my mighty big brother and his friends, they can't even do that. In fact, they're like, they think it's cool, you know? Yeah, that must have been yeah, it was um, really- incredibly nurturing. Yeah. So, okay, so 13-year-old you realizes this is this is your wave. Yeah. You get your equipment, you're practicing, your brother's bigging you up. Mm-hmm. How- oh, and, and, and then so there's the equipment, right? Right. Because the equipment I was using was definitely not made for scratching. Right. Wasn't and I, in techniques. N- no, it was like some cheaper techniques. And and I was definitely like breaking my father's needles and like rushing off to replace them before he would notice and that kind of stuff. So, you know, after after a little while of this, 
I wanted to get an actual turntable. And there was a record shop that Dave and I would go to in Montreal and just, you know, buy 12 inches and, and whatnot and just kind of find out about what was coming out. And they were selling a secondhand turntable. Like a friend of the guy who ran the shop had his turntable up there and it was right. like, you know, buy a secondhand turntable. is like $400 or something. So that's that's when I wanted to buy that. And I had to, you know, even though I had I'd made a few hundred dollars at my from presents at my bar mitzvah, I still was at the age where I had to ask my parents' permission to spend that money. I couldn't spend my, I, st- no. I don't think I still can Probably, spend yeah, my bar mitzvah still- <laughs> money. Like, I, I don't think I could touch that until yeah. I'm like 80 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so there was still an, uh, uh, you know, a negotiation there. And, sure. and Dave even helped out with that, you know, because I remember telling, you know, asking my dad, can I spend $400 or whatever it was? On a turntable. And he said no. No, yeah, of course. He said no. And if, and on top of no, he famously said, we have a turntable. <laughs> it's like, why do you want to buy a turntable? We have a turntable. I don't even think they make albums anymore. And to that, it was like, no, but actually they do. There's a record shop I go to where they, they have all the, the new songs that come out. And it's also that I've been scratching, you know, and that just does not make, you know, that that is not understood. It does not compute. To it doesn't compute. Parents, I've been scratching. Right. You've been what? And then... They're yeah, like, that, you need a cream for that. Exactly. Okay. That's annoying. <laughs> but, any, but, you know, eventually I was able to get a turntable. One at first and a little mixer, cheap little mixer that at least had a crossfader. And then a few months later, I, I was able to get a second one. So within a few months, I had an actual setup of two turntables and a mixer. And, and then, then it was on. Then I was like, okay, So cool, then you were now. getting very, like, proficient. So how does a 13-year-old boy who's practicing mm-hmm. become the youngest DMC champion at 15? Yeah, two years. How, so how did you sort of get in position to even compete? compete? So the DMC battles, the DMC DJ competitions were the most established battle that existed at the time and they had branches in every country and even and who with, who was running so it's interesting to think back at that right but it, it usually was it usually piggybacked on some sort of record pool like a promo record pool so someone who was already in the record industry who was in touch with a lot of djs usually having a record pool sending out promo you know promo records and 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 edits and stuff like that those were the kinds of people who would also take on the DMC franchise. It was a franchise. I think they had to pay some sort of yearly fee to the head right, office. Right, to of have DMC. the name. And yep. the, right. And then it was their responsibility to put on these battles, which for for which they had, you know, regional events in a bunch of cities. So how did you even hear about it? So there was regionals in each city and everybody in, you know, in those years, everybody was aware of these battles. So I knew there was a yearly DMC battle in Montreal, and they would have literally a little leaflet at the record shop. So the local record shop where I would go and buy, you know, my Pete Rock and CL Smooth 12-inch or my Smith & Wesson 12-inch or whatever, they would have a a little leaflet or a flyer that said, the DMC Montreal regionals are coming up. Send your cassettes to this address to be selected to enter. So I remember having to record a little, you know, a little demo routine on cassette mailing it and then you get a phone call a couple of weeks later that says, all right, you made the cut. You're going to be one of the competitors in this battle. And the thing that's wild to think back on is my first battle led me to be world champion. I entered this Montreal regional. At the time of the Montreal battle, I was actually still 14. And I'd only performed a few times on actual stages, but I was practicing 
you know, obsessively at in the basement and just getting all my tricks really tight. And um, it was at a point in time where scratching and turntablism were having a huge growth spurt. There was a lot of new tricks that were being invented. It was, you know, it was, it was, um, it's just really popular at that time, but also it was a very creative time okay. for the art form. And, you know, it just so happened that because I was learning everything indiscriminately at the same time, I was figuring out a lot of these new tricks that, you know, guys like Qbert, Rock Raider, Rob Swift, uh, Mixmaster Mike, DJ Babu, all these guys were innovating. The other local Montreal DJs were kind of slower at picking up these new um, act- tricks and and, right. and and patterns and whatnot. But for me, it was all new, so I was just soaking everything in. So I entered this Montreal regional at the age of 14, and I knew how to do all this stuff that, in fact, was pretty advanced. But I was just learning everything at once without, like, indiscriminately, whether there was a scratch from 1988 or a scratch that came on the scene that very year, I was just soaking it up. So I came in, and I'm sure it helped that I looked like a little kid, too, but I, I, I won the thing. How and, many how many competitors were there? A dozen or so. Okay. And... um. I won the thing, and then that took me to the Canadian finals, which were a few months later. So by then, I was 15. There was a couple DJs from Toronto that had a really just good reputation, heavy reputation. These Toronto guys were winning everything in the prior years. So I remember thinking, like, all right, let me just try to place in the top three. These guys are good. Like, Toronto's a bigger city. And I won that battle. So I ended up winning that and being sent to the world finals, which were going to be in Italy. And... You know, having to ask my school for permission to take a few days off to go to Italy to compete in the D- DMC. And what World did your Finals. parents think? My mom came with me. Oh. Yeah, my mom came with me. By then they were, you know, by that point, they, they realized saw that there they, was something right. special there. My dad had a little talk with me at one point just saying, you know, because I was, I was a pretty serious student. I had good grades. So he said, if you keep your grades up, you can do this stuff. That was his one thing. And his other thing was, put your damn headphones on. I don't want to hear this noise. <laughs> You know, my dad is both both a, both a neat freak and just like a silence freak. Um, he does not like to hear, uh, especially in those years when he was, you know, working hard every day. He didn't want to hear some jigga-jiggas around the house. Sure, sure. So, you know, as long as I didn't disturb him and that my schoolwork wasn't taking a hit, he was cool with it. And my mom would come to some of the shows. Dave was still, my brother was still like playing with bands with his friends from school and around that time, even starting to experiment with making hip-hop beats, you know, there was a trip to New York around that time where really just a little bit after I won the DMC battle, we went down to New York and, and he bought a sampler, two samplers actually, taught himself how to make hip-hop beats. And yeah, our parents were, were supportive. I, it just took my parents a few months to realize that this idea of buying a turntable wasn't complete nonsense. You know, because I would start getting a few gigs in the city, and then there would be like little write-ups in me uh, about me in like the local weekly child prodigy. Yeah, like you know how every city has their version of the Village Voice or whatever, like the Cultural sure. Weekly. There was little write-ups on me about in those in those papers, like oh, there's a kid who's scratching, <laughs> like literally, like same as did someone would say, like oh, there's a you know bear that ran away from the zoo. It'd be like oh, there's a kid who's scratching. <laughs> it was just like an attraction, you know. Um, and so once my parents saw that, they understood that I found a passion and that it was apparently I had a knack for this thing. And I didn't even realize how much of a knack I had until I 
was world champion. Like, I was. I'm freaking world champion, well, bitches. There's, there's also less information. Sure. Pre, you know, the internet existed, but it was dialect. I mean, it was, it really was very different. Yeah, yes. we're talking about 97. So it's slow, um, slow communication. And so everything was hearsay and, you know, videotapes from events that were many months ago and whatnot. So I was learning by observing my heroes, basically the DJs who broke a lot of ground right before me in the years prior to me. And I just assumed, I really assumed that in every city, there was someone like me who was learning like me at the same level as me. Really practically overnight or within a few months, I won this big battle and I, I got a big cosign from from Qbert and the Invisible Scratch Pickles. For those who don't know, they were, you know, a turntablist crew from San Francisco that was, you know, really highly regarded as as like the most um, advanced scratch DJs who were taking scratching into a very psychedelic, almost like also Miles Davis, you know, fusion huh. jazz kind of territory, very improvisational. And I didn't really realize at the time, but they were all taking a lot of acid and just doing like wild scratching shit, but also like advancing the art of it a lot. So these guys were like taking scratching into, you know, uh, psychedelic territories and every DJ idolized them because they were, they could scratch better and faster than anyone. And these guys came to Montreal and saw me and said, this kid is down with us, like literally co-signed. So um, between that and winning the DMC battle, both of those things happened in the same summer. Um, I still didn't fully understand in hindsight, but it, that, you know, that at well, least— Well, I, I would imagine it, that you it, would it, say, now what, right? Like, yeah. I'm the champion, now what? I'm, uh, like, in high school. Yeah. Or at least, like, <laughs> well, maybe there's something—I I really was convinced that in every city there had to be someone as good as me doing the same thing as me. And not that I necessarily thought that I was better than everyone suddenly, but at least it started clicking a bit that there was something I was doing that— was unique and special. Yeah, that was making a dent. And but my the way my mind worked, all I was preoccupied with was already starting to practice for the next thing. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to just always be prepared for whatever the next show would be. And I had to still improve a lot. In fact, when I won that first big battle at 15, there was also a fair amount of of haters, you know, the DJs in other cities who had had been trying to make their way into the battle scene, and suddenly this kid they'd yeah, never heard of. Yeah, this kid just comes up and he just he just houses it. Yeah, exactly, and just gets the title that they weren't able to get. So there's a lot of people who are like, ah, he's just like a cute little kid or whatever. It's not serious. So the way that I reacted to that was just practicing even more and. I really got a lot better right after that battle too. Huh. So then I ended up winning more stuff. And my whole thing was, you know, let me win even more titles so that no one can say shit. So you're winning titles, ITF, that's mm-hmm. tax, right? You graduate high school now. <laughs> yeah. Like I mentioned, I, I was into school and my family's kind of academic too. So, you know, the DJ stuff was exciting and I wanted to pursue it, but I also felt like I... I should also pursue some sort of education. and Okay. So I was just on some like, hey, this DJing stuff is awesome and, and I really want to keep doing this, but I don't know if I'll be doing this at So sport. you thought it was like a hobby, a yeah. fun hobby. Yeah, or at least like a serious hobby that could take up a few years of my life. Okay. So I still wanted to pursue school. I took a sabbatical before college, but I did I did enter McGill University. It was, it was a pretty prestigious school in Montreal where where 
my parents met and everything. And I, I, I got accepted um, as an honors physics student and I deferred for a year. Look at you. <laughs> yeah. And then I started my physics classes, but the honors program was pretty intense. You had to take a certain amount of credits per, per semester. And by then I was, you know, doing even more shows. So I couldn't really keep up the full schedule. I changed my schedule to part-time, which meant giving up on the honors scholarship, which is fine because Canadian schools are cheap. And, um, and I kept going for a while, but then I, I met Kanye, you know, I think one year into my university time. And um, next thing you know, Ye took me on tour. I would have to take like a t- semester off from school go do that whole thing, which really changed my life in a whole other way. And then for a while, I would try to come back and do, you know, squeeze in a semester between those tours because suddenly I was Kanye's DJ. And every time there was something else that came up, they would book me and bring, bring me out wherever it was. But I, I had to stop my studies. I never finished my, uh, my degree. Well, there's always next year, honey. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> okay, so now you're on tour with, with Kanye. Yeah. You're touring the world. Yeah. You're living the dream. In this, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was pretty amazing. The, the thing that was also really awesome about that whole break for me was that, you know, when I was describing the, the turntable scene in the late 90s and how that had a boom, that boom ended. By, by the early 2000s, the scene that I came up with where most of the DJs were at least five years older than me, that scene lost some steam as any... Well, scratching sort of lost popularity yeah. in, in the music. Yeah, there's that. And, and, you know, people used to just go to a scratching event and just watch people scratch for a whole night. After a couple of years, they got tired of that. Like it, uh-huh. it became a little bit too insular and like self-serving in the sense. And so... Outside people got less interested after a little while and people moved on to other things and got into bands or whatever was popular in the early 2000s, you know? So as fads and music music change, this trend that I was a big part of, you know, lost some steam. So a lot of my peers who were older had to also figure out like what they wanted to do next. Did they want to still try to carry on or did they want to just get like a weekly gig at their local club or do something else. Everybody had to like choose a path, but I was still pretty young and I was really such a flag bearer and believer as, you know, in, in turntablism and scratch DJing as, you know, an art form and a form of music. I wanted to legitimize that. And and those battles that I did were just like the, the first step of what was meant to be a whole crusade for me. So I wanted to just find new places to bring this style of DJing that I specialized in. So I wasn't done. The scene was kind of taking a hit and I was like, I'll, I'll find somewhere to take this. I, I made it my mission. And that was, that's what was so uh, fortunate about getting the Kanye gig was that it gave me a place to continue moving forward where suddenly we were playing in these big arenas at Madison Square Garden or on, on MTV, the VMAs, at the Grammys, whatever, on, on these huge stages. Everywhere as Kanye was blowing up, Everywhere that we went as a show, I brought scratching with me. So it gave me a way to... But he was obviously, he was open to it. Yeah, that's what he wanted. Right. So it gave me a way to to continue, you know, waving the flag and bring it to two places. And that, what followed like the mid-2000s era, even outside of the Kanye work, became a really seminal, really crucial part of my life in terms of like eventually forging, you know, 
culturally, I'd say my identity, more so than just scratching in the sense that I was starting to come to New York more and more and eventually moved here in 06, but already by like 04, 05, I was, I was um, in my early 20s. I was, you know, again, just starting to like forge. I remember you. Yeah, we, we met around then. <laughs> and I was starting to like figure out my own identity outside of just being someone who scratches really well. And I would go to like shops downtown and start, you know, dressing a certain way, going, making my little pilgrimage to like Union or whatever and buying graphic t-shirts and graphic hoodies and You loved whatever. the little little er- turn of the cent streetwear. Yeah. Didn't we all though? All over everything <laughs> and, you know, whatever sneakers I was into, Dunks and, and uh, you know, Bo Jacksons or whatever, like all, you know, any Bo colorful. Jacksons were good. They were dope. So I had my sneakers that I liked and I had my, you know, colorful hats that would match my colorful t-shirt. So like that... Became a and thing. And little for, bangs. Yeah. Out of Caesar. <laughs> and even what was cool with that scene is I was able to also start meeting the people who were making those teas. And even just the idea of collabs, which it seems like the most obvious thing now. In those years, for a DJ to sit down with a t-shirt designer and be like, hey, why don't we make some together? That was different then. Of course it and, was. It was the infancy of, yeah. of the collaboration culture. Where yeah. And, and like MySpace was happening and I was meeting other DJs through MySpace. And... Musically, you know, I, I was the um, I was the first DJ to endorse Serato as a software. Serato is, is from New Zealand, and now every you know people think that every DJ uses Serato, but Serato came out in two thousand three. So that is that when I think of that era, that was a big part. Like, well, the, I remember that era. And yeah, I was well, DJ. You probably remember lo- starting to see people bring laptops yes, at a club and, and how and, weird that was. And in the I was DJing a little bit. Then, just as a joke for like, you know, I was tra- DJ Tracy Towers. Shout out to me. Hey. Um, when Serato came out and when people started using it, it was like, you are fucking cheating. This is bullshit. It was a whole thing. But the advantage was. No, no. I mean, I think it was, it was, you were early on the wave. Like you were smart. It was. Well, the thing that was exciting for me was that I could experiment with, with like a much bigger range of styles very quickly because I was building up a digital library of music, which was, again, a really new thing. But I could trade files with a couple friends and just have all this music to play with. So then I was into mashups. And then I would go to Europe and find, like, electronic music that actually wasn't tacky. Because before I thought I thought dance music was for guidos, right? I just thought dance music for like was for, like, literally guido clubs. And then shout out to the Guidos. Yeah, shout out to the Guidos. <laughs> and and I wasn't I didn't fully understand then that prior to that because it how, was. It actually Well was. it was for that time period. <laughs> I didn't I, I didn't fully understand then that it was really born in Chicago and, and Detroit and that it was black music and that it came from the you know the same kinds of Right, like house know, music. Yeah, yeah. Like that that ghetto house was mm-hmm. born in the same context as hip hop was. Mm-hmm. I only saw what I what it had become in the late 90s and early 2000s where, where it was a lot more slick and just not cool for a hip-hop kid. But by the mid-2000s, there was new producers in Europe who were making a different version of what they were kind of calling electro that was grittier and that had hip-hop samples in it and that I thought was exciting. So I started putting that kind of music into my sets too, which really led to kind of the identity musically that a lot of people eventually knew me for, which is, you know, Merging right. hip hop and electronic and, e- music. and right EDM. Yeah. Right. So all of that was birthed in that time, and even just like going to New York again, like to 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 soak up 
you know, pardon the word, but the culture. Soak mm-hmm. up the culture. Visit Dave for a couple of days and go to record shops, you know, go shopping. But then we would go to like one of Roxy's parties, right? And because she booked Chromio super early on. Oh, yeah, so Dave did. had started Chromio by then. He was going to Columbia, but also starting a new band with his friends. They were kind of in the sort of indie rock, early hipster scene, even though they're making funk because there there wasn't a place for them yet. And um, But I would go to these little parties downtown and see DJs doing cool shit with their mixes and kind of what was going on, you know, in that sort of, like, you had the parties at the Tribeca Grand, but then... You know, pretty soon there was also those APT parties and oh, yeah. all that shit. Like the, you know, the type of music that DJs were playing was just expanding a lot. You know, I came up in an era in the late '90s where DJs were playing current hip hop records, and that was it. You were playing boom bap, and that's all you played. And then suddenly I'd be like, oh shit, wow, there's someone playing some funk records, but here's someone also playing like the Clash, but some somehow also mixing it with like dance hall and, you know, it was all, all these possibilities were opening up, you know? So I approached that, but I approached that with my sort of technical know-how of scratching, but also my new curiosity for electronic music and all that shit became this crazy storm of creativity. And the next thing you know, like literally the following week, I would hop on a plane and go do a couple of Kanye shows and get inspired by just the magnitude of that operation working with Ye in those years and right in the middle of a growth spurt, even for him, pause, what, like seeing an operation <laughs> that big, that made me think like, oh, wow, there's a way to think bigger. You know, like even just these things obvi- seem obvious now, but in those years, it was new to see an artist make a song and in the same sitting think this is what the cover should look like and this is what the video should work like, should look like. And I might ask this person to help me finish that beat and blah, blah, blah. Like that whole 360 vision, people weren't thinking like that prior to that. It was a lot more segmented. Compartmentalized. And, compartmentalized. and like, this is your job. Yeah. This is, right. what or is the director going to give me the treatment for mm-hmm. the video? Yeah. So those years really planted all the seeds for what I did since then. Okay. And so, even getting into production, because I wasn't even making my own music yet. So let's, let's stay on our timeline. Mm-hmm. So Kanye, it's over. Yeah. How did it end? It ended, I, I quit after I started Fool's Gold. I worked with him for four years, and it was a very fruitful four years. You know, I would introduce him to some of my friends who were making, you know, designing T-shirts and making videos. But then he would just give me feedback on what I was working on and help me think like I was saying on a bigger scale. And I, you know, scratched on Gold Digger. I scratched on Common's B album, which was an amazing album. And kind of helped shape the sound of the graduation album that was, you know, it had the stronger record. I played him Daft Punk, that kind of stuff. So we were just exchanging a lot of ideas. But in the process, I was teaching myself how to produce. I was making my first remixes. I moved to New York in the middle of that process, you know, met people like Dust Rock, Catch Dubs, Roxy, the guys that do the rub, my friends Flostradamus in Chicago, that whole kind of circuit, you know, the Holotronic guys in Philly, which, you know, led to right. Diplo kind of going his sure. own way and, and everything that he's done after. Magical time. Yeah, and it was a DIY time, right? So, because if you think absolutely. about it, it comes right after. The early 2000s was a lot more of a 
top-down, major-label heavy era, especially if you think about hip-hop, the early 2000s is, you know, 50 Cent, but it's also— It's all 50 Cent. Yeah. That's all it's, I remember. Yeah, it's 50 Cent. I mean, Dipset were DIY, but aside from them, there was a lot of albums. There was a lot of R&B music. There was the explosion of regional rap, Nelly, and all that stuff. But also, there was a lot of very manufactured major-label major label albums where— no matter who the artist was, you had you had your one Neptune's beat, you had your one Rockwilder beat, you had maybe a Timberland beat, and it was um, it was yeah, it was manufactured. So I think you know those two thousand five six kind of eras brought in different values of people starting their own clothing brands again, bedroom DJs coming up with new sounds, you know, spank rock, MIA, that kind of music. And I, I embraced that ethos because to me, that brought me back to the spirit of the late 90s when I was getting into hip hop and I would, and Dave and I would go down to It was Fat very Beats. inclusive to yeah. everyone where sort of more hardcore hip hop was very exclusive right. to, to the culture and, and you know, like— It, it just felt like um, the possibilities were, were expanding and, and even just, you know, everything that— all the advancements in technology, you could just sit down with your friend and design something and make it, or you could record an album, you know, in your closet and it sounded fine. You didn't have to go into a studio or you didn't have to afford a professional studio time. So tell tell me about how how did you come up with Fool's Gold with Nick and Josh? So Fool's Gold really came from the combination of Having new music that I was involved with that I wanted to that I wanted to release, and also really embracing a scene that was all around us. As far as the music I was making, do you remember Kid Sister? I was going to ask you about yeah. Kid Sister. Yeah. So Kid Sister was a rapper from Chicago who I I befriended at first, and we ended up dating for many years. I was but... going to say you befriended her very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she but... was adorable, and then I remember. Working a little bit on her reality show. Oh yeah, because because yeah. Sasha Jenkins yeah, was trying yeah, to yeah. make that. Yeah, shout out to Sasha. Shout out to Sasha. Yeah, Meeting. and that was such a cute track. That yeah, uh, Pronails. Yeah, Pronails. Yeah. Pronails was like you know kind of a paradigm shift. Yeah, you know. So meeting Kid Sister, who was a new, really burgeoning rapper from Chicago whose brother was one of the DJs in Flostradamus. So that DJ crew, they were, you know, that duo, they were friends of mine as well. We became friends at the same time, really. I was starting to experiment with with new sounds in my production and making more sort of upbeat, you know, fun, clubby kind of tracks. And I started recording her rapping on them. And she was also making tracks with the producer Triple Exchange, who then was mostly known for uh, working with Spankrock. And is still doing amazing stuff. He worked, you know, he's worked with Wiki in recent years and did a lot of stuff at the XL studio in New York. So shout out to uh, Triple Exchange too. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it was a time where people felt okay to experiment and to try stuff out. There was this sort of like, what's the worst that can happen if I make a bad song? I'll just make a better song the next day. Because I think there's certain eras where people feel the pressure to follow formulas. And there's other eras where everyone's like, let's just make weird shit. I don't know. I f- like not not sure how to explain why, but it felt like that era of like let's try different sounds. So were you nervous? Were you nervous to leave Kanye? Um, no. I thought about it for a while because it was a big time commitment. You know, whenever there was one of those tours, I I was I would go away for a long time. 
But just to, to your time is not a, your own, right? Yeah. You're sort of like yeah, you're, exactly. They could say, "Hey, we're leaving for a week," and once you're gone, they could say, "Actually, we're gone for another week," which for a while was fine. But once I had Fool's Gold as a responsibility, I couldn't do that anymore. So as far as what started Fool's Gold, it was literally making a few new songs with Kid Sister and thinking, this is cool. We should just put this out ourselves. Because Dave and I had put out other independent records in the years prior when, when we were still in Montreal. So I knew that it's not that hard to, even the press vinyl, like things like that, if you've done it once, it's not this big mystery. Right, like you know, how, how do I do this? Yeah, right. exactly. I think if you've never made a record, it seems like a magic trick that like you need someone else to wave their wand. But if, once you do it once, you're like, oh yeah, I just send the that tape to the plant. And then three weeks later or whatever, six weeks later, they send it back. So there was Kid Sister music and there was a few friends around me that were like mostly DJs. It was a very DJ-fueled time that were doing cool shit. And I was, you know, getting closer and closer with Nick, with Catch Dubs. And we kept exchanging music and thinking about cool ideas. And yeah, again, we were like finding people around us who were making great music that no one was really releasing. So the idea of putting music out was coming up. And that's what led to Fool's Gold. Just this idea of like, why don't we just start a thing? Because both of us and even Dave, who was still always, you know, always present in my life and always helping think of like, what you know building a legacy and like leaving a mark and and standing for something in a sense you know like just building a community and 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 um and helping get certain certain people get heard the idea came in that setting of like well you know these kid sister songs are really cool and there's like literally four or five other people in our group of friends making music that's really cool these majors these major labels are certainly not even aware that the ground is they're shifting because right, they're, they're freaking out cuz right. downloads are killing them because right. it's the Napster years. So the major labels are like completely blind that culture is completely changing. And so we just start thinking like, why don't we just put shit out ourselves? And, and Fool's Gold was born out of that. And because all of us are, were really into aesthetics and, and the legacy that certain labels that we grew up being fans of, like how, how labels that we loved had a recognizable look also. And to us, that was going to be a key part of building a legacy. We wanted to have an in-house art director. My friends who were running Stone's Throw Records had this guy, Jeff Jank, who was designing everything, um, especially at that time. You know, the Mad Villain album cover is super iconic, for example. Um, my friends in France were running the the label Ed Banger. They had Somi doing everything. So these labels that... Um, served as examples for us had in-house art directors. So we just thought, well, who do we know who's an artist who could literally be a partner of Fool's Gold, like be a part of the company, an integral part of the company from day one. And Josh was designing all these cool flyers for Roxy's parties. Sure so was. Yeah, so, you know, the the events that helped shape that whole experience in that time of my life a lot of them were already, you know, illustrated by him. So we we approached him to uh, to be a part of Fool's Gold, and and he um, he was literally, um, you know, he came in as a partner right when we founded the company. How are things now without without Dustle Rock? Um, Have you filled that position no. with? So it's like a guest artist. So or? well, and the one thing to mention is that Dust 
left his position as art director after five years. So there was a period of, a f- of two or three years where Fool's Gold was starting to make the transition of not having a permanent art director, not having Josh specifically because he was so integral in, in you know, shaping our image. Right, and like the visual he, language of Fool's Gold. Yeah, so sure. he, he left the company. You know I was supposed to do your first collab? I have I have the files. Oh wow! But he kept saying no, not this. Not, and I was like, I'm really <laughs> into this. This is what I'm doing. Like this is it. Yeah. And we had like an argument about it. Uh-huh. But I was like, yeah, well, let's revisit this like okay. another time. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. anyway, just a little factoid. Yeah, I remember that there was something in the works with you in those yeah. years. D- dear and, fr- dear friend of mine. Yeah, of course, of course, yes. So yeah, even before Josh passed, there was already a, a, there was the, a uh, period of fool's gold without Josh. Okay. We still don't have an art director. If anything, the the partners are myself, Nick, and Dave, and we creative direct the, the label, the company ourselves, and we'll hire artists and illustrators. Specifically yeah, for a project. Specifically for a merch collection or for sure. someone's album. We'll hire someone to do art direction for one person's project, like let's say an album and its singles. And then for another project, because we do such a wide variety of releases and, and things too, I think there was a point where Fool's Gold, um, like the output of the label and the fact that it was a label, an events company, retail company, there was so many things to design and create that we we needed to to hire different artists for different sure. things too. He's not, yeah, he hasn't been replaced. There isn't, there isn't like a new Desla Rock. No. And, and, you know, the logo and the, you know, the basic brand, brand identity that he came up with right from the beginning is, is still, still such a huge part of what Fool's Gold is. So as far as when I think you're at, your question was, how is life without Josh? The main thing is I just miss him. I, I, just, mean, I miss my friends. Yeah. You know, like I think we we sort of figured out how to make Fool's, make Fool's make Gold function. Make it work without him. With, right. Yeah, because but it, there's again, a there's whole, such a right. wide range of things that need to be designed that it, it can work in other ways. But it's more, I mean, Josh had so much knowledge he just, you know, he really researched a lot of things and he had knowledge and a perspective that transcended the time. He was never really into, you know, whoever was like the cool crew of the moment or what was trendy. Um, in fact, he was always a little grumpy about that. But that was, that's what was great about him was that he could pull up uh, references from other eras that really were doper legitimately and figure out ways how to, you know, use that as inspiration for new artwork or new ideas. So um, that, his opinions are missed, I think. Yes. At the end of the day, like having, yeah, having a company, running an independent company, just being a few, a small group of friends that runs a company, the opinions are important. And his viewpoint, even though sometimes we butt heads or whatever, I think that viewpoint is missed. And, you know, like he was such a, he had such a clear line of what he liked and what he didn't like. Absolutely. And, and that's, very, very yeah, opinionated person. Strong opinions. And in this day and age where everyone sort of dabbles in a million things and, and everyone claims to know a bit of everything, it's that just having a friend and ally and, and partner who is of that ilk, someone that says, I like this and I don't like that, that's rare now. Most people are like, Politically down with kind of everything. It's the, Ugh. you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. I miss that. And he was like, and even just for me, like, I always felt that for my own path as a DJ, you know, the way that he had my back 
and the way that he would pay attention to decisions I was making, because it was a pivotal time for DJing too. And, you know, within a few years of us starting Fool's Gold, EDM as a phenomenon happened and DJing blew up on a much bigger stage. And I had to make a lot of decisions just to work out how I was going to navigate this playing field that was like 10 times bigger than when it was prior. So literally, it was there was actual choices and decisions. I'm, you know, just deciding like, this sound is cool for me to dabble with, but this is where I draw the line. I don't like that sound. Or like, I'm going to make a track with this DJ and I'm going to play this event, but not that one. Everything, not, not to make it sound too conniving, but the DJ scene was changing so fast that there was a lot of... Well, there's a lot of topography to cover and exactly. you and you can't and, do everything. Yeah, and, I, and even in those choices, I always felt like he had my back and he was one of the few people who could check me on something and be like, man... I'm not sure about that one thing that you did last week. It it comes across kind of funny. And I'd be like, ah, maybe you're right. Let me think of how to like, you know, h- how to spin that into something that feels more organic for me. Um, it's it's rare. Like I, you know, I've lost a I've lost a, a few friends over the years that each felt like really key allies, you know, and and I think the only way to deal with that, whether it be someone like him or DJ Medi, DJ AM, you know, these friends who I feel helped me shape this thing that is now such a big part of my identity, you know, the only way to kind of deal with it is, if anything, just, you know, not to sound weird, but imagining those conversations in my head to be like, what would Josh say in this I situation? I do that too, you know I mean? like, because there is such a huge, right, and the, yeah. but there is such a huge hole but if you did, you sort of dig into that a little bit yeah. and you're like, oh, he would have told me to do this. Yeah. And because th- you know the answer is really inside of you. Yeah, exactly. I, 100%. And that, so I think, you know, with these friends that are gone, you know, to use your term, it, it you're, we're left with holes, right? Like th- that's been one of my lessons over the years is like in the grieving process and realizing that I would feel like there was physically a hole in me, like a limb was gone. And Eventually, I sort of told myself that hole is not gonna fill, but I there's a way to accept that there's a hole there and kind of carry on with that. And I, I like how you said it that you can sort of look inside the hole and and, and think of what that person would have said because you know it's for 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 unfortunately for both of us and a lot of us and even people around us we've lost people who whose opinions and and yeah whose opinions and advice were so key to us. But I think there's a way to look at that as lessons and to integrate those lessons. So they stay with us. Right. And all that comes from a little time healing the the pain. Yeah. So Fool's Gold, as it is now, it has many appendages. Yeah, yeah. What is your key product that makes the money? Ah, interesting question. Because even that, that changes, like, even the last... Because the music business is a very confusing business on how people are able to actually make a living at it because it's not through actually making music at times. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's it's peripheral... It depends, right? Support items or... or, You you speak. Yeah. It depends. I mean, I think what you're referring to is, for example, this, the idea that for certain musicians... Touring can be where they make music. Sure. For a label like us that has a certain amount of 
releases, a catalog. Fool's Gold's been around for 11 years, so there's a there's a pretty big, you know, chunk of music that sells through time. Even if few of those are like big, big hits, like we're not sitting on a whole bunch of platinum plaques. In that accumulation, there's a, there's a sort of mass that works where, you know, just through re- continuing to sell songs through the years, that is, you know, an important part of what keeps the lights on at Fool's Gold. But what's interesting with us is, and, and also I should mention that the sort of um, solvency, you could say, of the record business has really changed in the last two years or so, where as streaming became a sustainable model, so the era of the Spotify's and the Apple Music's and the titles has allowed the record business to turn a corner and become profitable again okay. after losing years. The record business lost money for about 15 years. And two years ago, it made money for the first time in all that time. Huh. So now we're at a point in time where the, for, where the record business is profitable, but it's also profitable for a select group of super popular and often viral artists, whether it be like very young rappers with a young audience that streams their music all the time or super pop stars, you know. But there's a lot of nuances to explaining this because a lot of people, you'll read articles that say, oh, um, Spotify and the like, they don't pay the artists enough. They kind of do actually. It's just, you know, a lot of the laws of, you know, how to monetize music kind of need to be rewritten with to adapt to the Wasn't digital age. Wasn't that what your boy Kanye was doing with President Trump? Let's, because not, let's not talk about him or that. But <laughs> he did change music law. Well, First time in 30 years. Yeah, but it's not, he was there for the signing of a law. Uh, he didn't pass that. Oh, all right. Just to be, no, not to. Fair enough, know. fair enough. Uh, <laughs> High five and going on over here. But we're not going to get into that. But um, aside from a few technicalities where, you know, the rule, the laws of how music is monetized do need to be adapted to, you know, literally technology. Right, to, right? to the modern. Aside from that, in, in, right. in, in the general picture, the streaming platforms do pay out. And it's a little bit hard to fathom the numbers because if someone tells you how much one stream brings in, it's like a hundredth of a cent or even okay. something like a very small fraction. It seems dismal, but it adds up really fast. In the bigger picture, and to answer your question about Fool's Gold, we're still uh, an independent company um, that supports mostly emerging artists. You know, so to, you know, to be, to be frank, it's like, there's not, it's, we're not sitting on that many huge hits. We really love to, of course, we, we strive to find them, but I think what we're best at is presenting new artists to the world and providing a nurturing home for, for artists who are, who have a strong identity and who just need a little bit of help to kind of finish crafting how to present it you know, everything from just narrowing down and helping, you know, sort of finesse and finish up a body of work musically to choosing what it should look like, picking collaborators for the artwork, doing little, you know, cool videos and pieces of content that go with it. Fool's Gold has grown into a content company and a culture company more than just a label. So the main sort of sectors of the company, there's the record label, there there is specifically a content branch that's making a lot of new video stuff that were that hasn't even all come out yet. There's a lot of new things there. We're an events company. Um, Fool's Gold Day Off is our most visible 
franchise of sure. events, and we do that in a few cities. But there's also label showcases and smaller parties in some cities, and there's even more and more, you know, uh, programming for for other brands um, that that we've started doing, you know, using our expertise in in, in putting together shows. Um, and there's the retail side that has a physical store in Williamsburg and the clothing brand itself. So it's got all these pieces to the puzzle. And I would say that the way I would describe the the business model is that the label is a sort of reliable chunk of the business and of the income. We have enough releases under our belt that re- reliably we know that that's going to bring in a certain amount of money. And we don't even need to shoot for the stars and hope that there's going to be some breakaway hit because we don't really love the process that goes with manufacturing those hits. We prefer to find the nice accidents. Sure. And we seem to find one of those every couple of years. So that's worked out fine for us. Something every couple of years that just sells more than the rest of the pack for us. And that, you know, just kind of keeps the fire burning. So where do you find these new artists? I'm a DJ and so is Nick. And it's our job to research music all the time. Okay. So because we're DJs, that even feeds the research for Fool's Gold. And then among the other things that we do, whether it be the events, some of the merch collabs, things like that, there's other, you know, sort of notable projects that'll go and fill out the rest of the activity of the of the business. You know, some of our shows lose money, but once in a while there's a show that does great, that pushes the company along. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a grassroots company and it's what we care about the most is... Um, spotlighting creative um, and unique people who are in our orbit, who are around us. We, d- we, we open up the doors of our store to have, um, you know, people in our sort of scene to come in and do pop-ups, art shows, music workshops. Sometimes I give DJ lessons. At this point, every week, there's something going on at the Fool's Gold Shop that's some sort of activity. We want it to be like the cool YMCA where you could just come in you know, grab the pamphlet with the list of events. Get a dirty month. bed and <laughs> nap it off. Yeah, right. it's like <laughs> learn something, pick up, you know, a print by an artist who's a friend of ours or or, or a T-shirt. So that you're get, you are a community organization. Mm-hmm. You are fostering the community. Yes, that's what Fool's Gold has grown into. And that's, and well, that, that's a beautiful thing. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it's, at the end of the day, it's what we care about. And I'm lucky to be in a position where I can, at the same time, travel the world as a DJ and go play these big festivals and go play all types of different clubs. One night I might play a techno set. The other night I might play a hip hop set. I might stay an, ef- an extra day and record songs with someone, put out EPs and projects with other artists. That's like the A-track identity. And the business side of that allows me to not feel too much pressure to change what Fool's Gold is, you know? because Essentially, DJing is the main fuel of how I earn my living, and I'm happy. Like I'm, I'm happy with the level I'm at with that. So then I'm able to look at Fool's Gold and sit down with my friends that we run the company with, and just think, cool, who do we want to spotlight this month? You know, who should we make a hoodie with? Who's a who's a young photographer that could shoot our next campaign that's going to get some exposure from that and approach it from that angle? Is Fool's Gold a boys' club? No, there's always been um, there's always been a fair amount of female artists over the years. Obviously, the you know I mentioned Kid Sister in yes. the early days, 
We've put out music by Bosco, Leaf, Kissy, Kittens just this year. Um, what about Anna behind? Luno. What about behind the scenes? Behind the scenes, it varies over the years. We're actually changing some of the staff right now, and I've been interviewing some some candidates for for a, a new position. And every time I interview a woman for that position, there's a little voice in my head that's like, "I think this is this this is um, needed in the office space because the you know the staff changes over the years. It's sure, all, it's always the same co-founders, and then. Who's the label manager? Who's the GM? Who's the artwork intern? Whatever that changes, and there, ha- I, I'll admit that there's been years where it's been a boys' club, but we've realized that and we've made efforts over time to bring. Well, don't it you think DJing, DJing is a boys' club? Is a boys' club? Yeah. And and why and why do you think that is? I don't know. I wish I knew. It's weird because I don't know what it is. I I, I don't know the real reason. I just know that once it became a boys' club. I feel like a lot of men sort of like kept their el- their elbows out and tried to sure, keep it that way. Sure, they commandeered it. But it's weird because is it? I don't know if it's the early days of the of DJ history was it was gay, you know, like totally. hip hop and house music started. Larry Levan and other you know forefathers that totally. we don't even need to name that we know they're gay and whether people say it or not, it's. That's not my business, sure. right? So it started in 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 a gay scene that you would think would be um, inclusive and and not this sort of hetero. <laughs> um, gay but, men hate women too. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Shout out to my uh, but, but, to my my gay my gay friends out there. I know you love me. Exactly, but all this this I, I was just trying to say like it did turn into a not only male, but quite hetero thing over the years. And I'm not sure why that is, um, but I do think it's important to, to you know, just give opportunities or make, make sure that there's enough female DJs getting work at all times. Have you heard of DJ Pearly? I've not. Who's that? She is the first woman to ever win the DMC championship. Really? Yeah. And what's, like, world or what? No, what city? I got to... Oh, wait, no, I do know her. Sorry, sorry, sorry. She is the sweetest. She's from here. She's from here. Sorry, she's from I, New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Pearly. I know her. She comes to the Fool's Gold store with her parents. She's yes, awesome. she's always with her okay. parents. I'm or sorry. So, yeah. yes, yes, her mom. She busted her way into my studio when yeah. she was like a young, young teenager with her mom. Exactly. I, I blanked on her DJ name. I'm sorry. I definitely know her. And so, you know, I organized the Goldie Awards, this DJ competition, yes. right? So that's important, too. And, and I just watched it. On your stories. Right. So I've been posting because... And Qbert looks exactly the same as he did <laughs> yes. 20 years ago. Yeah. Exa- like... Still the same He's guy. unbelievable. So, so the Goldie Awards is kind of my my latest project. And it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it, it's very dear to me because it connects the dots between different eras of my life. And, you know, all the all this, the aspects that make up my identity as a DJ. But it's it's a DJ battle and a beat battle that, I started organizing last year. This year's event is coming up November 8th. And it's so it's, this is the second annual Goldie Awards. And for, yay. And for that, it's been important for myself and my team to make sure that there's women in the battle and women with, you know, among the judges. And this year we have one of the hosts is, is um, Nadeska Alexis, who does Everyday Struggle and Complex. Uh-huh. She's one of the hosts. You know, Venus and Anna Luno are, are among our judges. And I just think that it's it's really important, even for 
Last year, one of the competitors was um, Caper. She's a DJ from, originally from London, but she's here. And she's been in New York for a long time. And she killed it. And it was so important for me that she be there. And I know for a fact that there's other women who are aspiring DJs who saw her, who may have been hesitant to enter battles and then saw her and thought, I could do this. And that's what's important is, is to you know, present that sort of role model that where someone else can watch and say, oh, okay, next year that'll be me. Or like, just, you know, it's, it's possible. It's not that crazy. It's not unattainable. There's no reason for it to be, but I don't know why. It's, you know, I think it's just years and years of bad baggage of it, of it being a boy, boys club. And it shouldn't be that hard to break that. No, it shouldn't. Yeah. It shouldn't. There's and, no reason why it and, shouldn't. And, no- uh, you know, as much as, as it's sort of not, uh, you know, prevalent, it's better than it's ever been, right? There's more yeah. women than there has ever been, you know, that are sort of wanting to be a part of the culture. So yeah. if you are doing your record deals, you're recording music, you're looking for new artists, you're doing your mm-hmm. research, what do you do in your free time? I don't have much free time, but free time tends to be, I try to make it sort of culture time because, I, you know, I, I, like to, I like to feel like I'm soaking in, you know, good art that'll end up inspiring me in different ways. So there's something very calming about, about that, whether it be, you know, a trip to the museum or, or, or watching a documentary or discovering someone's work. So there's some of that. You're so like lofty. Uh, you no, know, like- no, I don't mean it like that. I just think that I have a ton to learn in that respect too. I don't even know that much about visual arts, but it, but I, but I, I have a sort of very simple appreciation for it, and I just like that feeling of, you know, just letting something go into my eyes. It's different from putting, you know, than through my ears. It's a different sensation. Sure. Um, so there's a little bit of that, but it's, uh, it's simple things. It's just spending time with my friends and taking the odd bit of time off here and there, going on a little trip to recharge. Um, I've been trying to teach myself how to cook cause I really am not good at it, but I think I have potential. Fool's gold bagels. I see it now. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Just simple things. Like even just earlier in the year, I was, I was trying to teach myself how to pick up on the piano again. Cause I, I hadn't touched that since I was like 12. So those little things that kind of block out time and or freeze time and block out stresses. I find that it's not even that much about what I do with my free time, but one of the things that I've tried to learn, you know, after years of being a sort of, you know, bullish, stubborn, obsessive worker that would just, I'll just get sick every couple of months because I was, you know, slaving myself too hard is um, just allowing myself plenty of recharge time and knowing, even being able to anticipate which trips are going to kick my ass and what projects are going to really... Well, that comes with time and experience. Yeah, you're where you're, after a while, to... you're like, that thing, when I finish, let me not even imagine that the following day I'm going to like deliver some deadline thing. I'm going to be dead for three days and really let's, let me book a spa thing during those days and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's simple shit, but just kind of trying to anticipate what's going to knock the wind out of me. And I used to feel like I had to like allow myself to have times where I'm not working or, or, you know, if I have to be late for something, but it's going to sound better that way. Like just, I, I wouldn't really allow myself those things. But with time, I've kind of seen that it's really the only way if I don't want to. You have like, to be gentle up, with yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter that much what 
I'm doing. It's more about, you know, surrounding myself with my loved ones and trying to do little things to take care of myself. Like even just, you know, figuring out better nutrition in recent years. And like, I used to never really exercise because I'm kind of a wuss and I'm like, I was never good at sports. And then realizing like, oh, when I go to the gym, you know, if I'm able to do this twice a week, even if there's certain weeks where I don't really make it, but if I try to do as much, to stick to that as much as I can, I have more energy. I feel better. I don't, you know, I spent years just being like, why am I getting sick? Why am I tired? Why am I this? And then, you know, you sort of realize that everything has to be counterbalanced and, and, you know, that the body's this sort of machine or engine that you can't treat like shit, like treat like hell all the time. That it, it It's needs true, but little, it's very difficult to yeah. be on tour and live a healthy yeah. life in the scheduling and the yeah. food options. Even flights, you know what I mean? The, the, the air quality, air, oh the God, dry it's the air worst. and the flights, all the little micro stresses that come with going to the airport every day. Oh, I'm running late. Okay, I made it on time, but now I have to sit and wait. Oh, now it's delayed. How long is it going to be delayed for? Am I going to be late for this? I'm going to miss this interview. Do we have to reschedule? Oh, now I have to board. Oh, I have to be in line. Ah, this person took my spot. Like all those those little series of things that don't require any physical effort and don't even require much brain power, they're tiring. Yes, they are. And understanding that that is a thing and that it's okay to feel that way and thinking of something else that I can do once I land that'll make me feel better, even that is takes a little while to figure out. At first, it's just years of why do I feel like shit? And then eventually you're like, oh, well, all those little micro things add up. And then, but if you if you don't eat that one thing and if you, you know, go run for a little bit or whatever it may be, like just, you know, balancing out the day with other stuff, even though every day feels like I'm not never going to be able to finish it, everything that I have to do and it's always frantic. But don't you always feel now, mm. not like you did when you were young, it'll be there tomorrow. That was yeah. a feeling that I really, it took me a long time yeah. to be like, oh, you know, I got to get this done. I, yeah. Oh, I'm going to lose this, you know, job. And, yeah. you know, and now I'm like, oh, it'll be there tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Or at least um, I feel like there's a part of the day where I stay like full gung-ho, like I must do all these things. And then there's a part towards the end of the day where I get to that mindset of like, all right, I really legitimately did everything that I could do today. I don't think there's any other way I could have done it. I I wish I had finished these other things too, but, but, and then that's when the thought comes in, like I'll get to that tomorrow. Whereas I think there's a big part of my life where I would just say, no, you suck. Why didn't you finish these things? So yeah, just getting more, like knowing when to pull back and say, all right, all right, buddy, you did your best. Pick up, you know, go chill a bit. And then, then it starts again. Can you imagine if you would have stayed in physics? <laughs> <laughs> so I would have built an efficient machines. I'm sure you would have. Very efficient. So if you were going to imagine your life five years from now, yeah. what do you think you'd be doing? Right? You'll be, you'll be 41. Yeah. Five years from now. Or what's on your wish list of what you would like to get in order to. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think the next, the new phase and like, you know, the new goals are the sort of entrepreneurial um, sort of, you know, platform type of projects that I do, whether it be um, Fool's Gold as a platform, um, you know, things that I do like doing DJ lessons and giving talks and whatnot, and even the Goldie Awards as as um, as a business venture, because it's that too. 
I think that within a few years, or at least the goal is for those things to become even more of a, you know, a bigger part of my business life because they're still kind of these, uh, these plants that I try to water and grow. And, you know, in conjunction with that, you know, maybe a little bit less constant touring because I still spend most of my time on the road and launching these projects or just making sure that they adapt to the times and sustain. But I, th I think the next five years is about growing the entrepreneurial side of what I do even more and, um, you know, just making them, even the things that feel like almost, you know, I don't know, I don't know if I should say pro bono, but sort of like give back kind of work. Mm -hmm. music workshops, things like that. Like, I think there's a way to grow that as a, you know, on a, on a, on the business level into something that's just solid and a part of what my, you know, what the pie is for me. Mm -hmm. And then to get, to be increasingly selective with the musical activity. I'll, I'll never stop gigging. I love to DJ and, and, you know, it's, it's what, what I get. What is it about about DJing. I just feel like I'm, 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 I feel so comfortable doing it. And there's. You never get nervous. Like, oh no. God, there's going to be this, like so many people there. No, and I don't like, know. I have I, a sore throat and like. I mean, if I'm sick, it, it's not fun. Like if I'm literally like sure, if I have a fever, sure, sure, sure. it sucks. You're dizzy on stage or if I'm about to puke, then yeah, it sucks. But for the most part, no, it, it's not only is it. Is it always fun? It's always, there's always ways for it to be exciting. You know, I'll give you an example. Just last weekend, I played a club in LA where, you know, I've played that same venue, I think three times in the last year, year and a half. I generally don't go back to the same clubs that often. And I thought like, you know, let me play a completely different set this time. And I even used like a different piece of equipment and I played longer and, you know, like there's, it's so easy for me to keep challenging myself and to experiment with each show's and I feel so comfortable on my decks, you know, there's, and there's an immediacy. I could try ideas out and knowing whether or not they work is like a, is a direct energy feedback that I get right there on the spot. And it's, it's either there or it's not. And if it's not there again on the spot, I have to think of another way to change something with the set where it connects. And, and that, that, that quick feed of energy combined with just physically like brain to hands to decks how wired that is for me that's always going to be a part of my so life. are you i mean i'm sure you have some sort of set list in mind but is I it i freestyle a lot it's so that's what i was going to ask yeah, I freestyle you a lot. and when you're freestyling is this electronic this is not mm -hmm. this yeah, is serato right yes. so are what if the power goes out or like of course the power goes out the party's over mm. but um if there's a malfunction mm -hmm. i i worry about having a dependency on technology yeah because i'm old and i <laughs> didn't have one um for a long time and now i am so dependent on it mm -hmm. but would i be able to do what i have to do without like you never find that that sort of maybe hold you back a little bit or? Well, look, I don't, I don't think, I think there's no way to avoid technology. It's, it's a part of everything that we use. And, and um, for me, there's not much interest when people talk about like, oh, let's do a vinyl only set. That's like, I don't know. It's like hearing someone say like, let me go play with my train set. Like, cool. If you want to do that, it's fun. But I don't think that's 
Very like, I'm not carrying any records now. Like, <laughs> yeah. <forget it. laughs> but even within the digital platforms that are available, some include a laptop. Okay. Like you, you can also just play, you know, with off of flash drives and CDJs. Okay. And that's a different... What is a CDJ? I the keep CDJ hearing... is is is, is a, essentially a, a digital turntable. Huh. Okay. It could play. It used to play CDs, but now it just plays off of flash drives, or okay. SD cards, or things like that. But what's interesting is going from one piece of equipment to the other. Even your browsing process is different. You know, one of them has a keyboard, the other doesn't. So like you're not. Sometimes you're using your eyes more than others. Serato, you can use Serato with turntables or also with CDJs as sort of controllers. There's a lot of different ways to vary the, the setups. And at this point, I use different equipment setups for different shows, depending on what the show is, depending on whether it's indoors, outdoors, the size of the event, what, how much of a ver- varied range of music I might see myself playing that night. So I even like alternating my setup because it, um, when I go from one to the other, I think about my selection differently. I even listen differently. So that's fun too. It's, I have like, there's, there's different, um, there's variations to my medium that I use. And it, it it's actually quite deep. It makes me think about my selection differently. Because you're at literally like challenging yourself on how yeah. to yeah, and I'm like, present I'm, this. I kind of test myself in front of a crowd. Like, I feel confident with my DJing where I mean, I'll just say like, all right, tonight, this weekend, I'll use a whole different kind of equipment that I don't usually use. And then I'll just kind of see how that goes. And it might make me think of my record selection in a different way. And I might think like, oh, uh, it's interesting when I went from A to B to C, let me go and do that off of the laptop at the next show too and see how that goes. And I'll just take little, you know, it's almost like when you have a medium, whether it be, you know, the same thing could be said, I'm sure about painters and visual artists, but the same thing can even be said about studio producers who program drums or use a sequencer or a synth or whatever. Some, there's a, there's, points where you and you start enjoying forcing an accident to happen because you know that you're always going to do a certain brush stroke a certain way because that's become your style or if you're programming drums you might have a certain swing that you always go to or you put the kick drum at that spot and not at that spot and then the thing that's cool with technology now I think is there's there are now ways to create these little accidents that just break you out of your comfort zone for a second. If you're good at what you do, you can use that as an impulse and then just nudge a few things into place and you end up creating a new thing. So I enjoy that too. I think I think it's cool that technology can like accelerate the accidents sometimes. And and the possibilities, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I learned so much today. <laughs> and you know, check out A Track. He's all over the internets, atrack.com, and uh, his Instagram is one of my faves, I must admit. It is? Yeah. I enjoy yours as well. Well, I'm the best. What can I say? Exactly. <laughs> It's funny when you have an idea of what someone's going to want to talk about and then you talk about other things. I'm I'm really I really love uh Alon DJ A track 
And his whole ethos, his fastidiousness to the craft, his obligations to his studies and his family. What what a gem. What a gem among men. More of this, please. Find him at atrack.com, at atrack on Instagram, at Fool's Gold Rex. He is putting on the second annual DJ and Beat Battle, the Goldie Awards, November 8th in Brooklyn on Frost Street. Google that, Goldie Awards. Let's hear it for DJ A-Track, keeping the culture real, giving back to his community, because that's what it's all about. You can catch me on Instagram at Claw Money, on Facebook at Claw Money, Twitter at Claw Money. It's all really boring. The Instagram's the one. Uh, Follow my shop at Clonco and my new kids brand at Claw Mini. Don't forget to like and subscribe this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and on Spotify. Please let us know what you think about this podcast or who you would like to hear by typing a comment below. Thank you to my producer, Jose Alfaro, and thank you so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Mwah! <laughs>